When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They called 1816 the year without a summer. It was a year when several climate anomalies collided with the eruption of Mount Tambora in the Dutch East Indies to create a long period where the average global temperature decreased by nearly a full degree Fahrenheit, causing major food shortages and other catastrophes throughout the Northern Hemisphere. Crops failed as frost, persistent fog, and cloud cover ravaged the land. Famine broke out across Europe, resulting in riots, arson, and looting. During the summer in western Switzerland, an ice dam actually formed below the tongue of the Gietro Glacier. Massive flooding occurred throughout China's Yangtze Valley. In India, torrential rains spurred on the spread of cholera. In other words, it was a pretty lousy year to take a summer vacation. But that's just what a pair of young lovers did. In 1814, the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley and his 18-year-old lover and later wife Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley set out on a whirlwind trip across Europe. In the summer of 1816, the couple stopped by to visit Lord Byron at his villa near Switzerland's Lake Geneva. There they were joined by the English poet and physician John Polidori. The cool, wet weather drove them all inside for much of that summer. And it was there while sitting around the orange glow of a crackling fireplace, that young Mary Shelley would give birth to a monster. It was a difficult labor. The group amused themselves by reading French translations of German ghost stories to one another. But by the time they exhausted that bit of amusement, Lord Byron proposed a contest where they'd each write their own horror story. Although Byron, Polidori, and Percy Shelley each came up with ideas rather quickly, it wasn't so for young Mary. Each morning they would ask her the same question, if she had thought of a story, and each day she grew more and more frustrated when she hadn't. One evening after dinner, the topic of conversation grew around the principle of life. Percy Shelley and Byron batted around the idea of just what it would take to reanimate a corpse. Mary noted that an Italian scientist named Luigi Galvani had experimented with the notion that an electric current could temporarily animate deceased organisms. It was an idea that wouldn't let go. That evening, thoughts swirled in Mary's head. They all retired to bed by just after midnight, but Mary was unable to sleep. Her mind became preoccupied by what she described as a waking dream, a vision of a scientist kneeling before a massive, misshapen creature he had constructed with his own hands. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, she wrote, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life, and stirs with an uneasy half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightening would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror-stricken. 
He would hope that, left to itself, the slight spark of light which he had communicated would fade, that this thing would subside into dead matter. By morning's light, Mary had her story. At first, she only meant to write it as a short story, but at Percy Shelley's encouragement, she expanded the tale of a mad scientist who creates a monster out of stolen body parts into a novel. A novel we all know is Frankenstein. The story of Frankenstein is one that has been told and retold countless times. It's inspired a seemingly endless string of books, movies, comic books, and video games. The concept of a man who plays God and creates life is a timeless one. The idea that mere mortals can do what biblical scripture tells us only God can do has always been a transgressive idea. Today, science further pushes the boundaries of what is possible. With the advent of cloning, genetic manipulation, and the ever-increasing possibility of creating the first artificial intelligence, it seems very likely that man can and will do what Christianity and other religions once claimed could only be done by an omniscient creator. Create life. But what if man already did it? In the mid-1800s, a New England clergyman attempted to do the unthinkable. Something so shocking that it caused the townspeople to rise up violently to stop him. Just like the villagers in Mary Shelley's novel rose up against the mad doctor and his creation. But this was no story. In October of 1853, in the town of Lynn, Massachusetts, Reverend John Murray Spear attempted to blur the lines between science and religion by building his own mechanical god. I'm Nate Hale, and the doctor that built me used the brain labeled Abby Normal. And this is The Conspirators. John Murray Spear was born in Boston on September 16, 1804. He was named after the founder of Universalism, the particular branch of Christianity he was brought up in. Universalism is a theological concept that involves the belief that every human soul will ultimately be reconciled to God because of his divine love and mercy. John and Charles's father died while John was still a child, leaving he and his brothers to provide for their mother and grandparents. John and Charles both went to work in a cotton factory in Dorchester in order to feed their family. John learned to read and write at the factory after meeting a Sunday school teacher who also worked there as a factory clerk. He eventually managed to become an apprentice to a local shoemaker, an occupation that would provide him a modest future were he to choose that particular path. But John had other dreams. He wanted to be a preacher just like his namesake. John and his brother Charles both studied theology. And in 1830, John was ordained and became the minister of the Barnstable Congregation of the Universalist Church of America. The following year, John married, and over time, he and his wife would have five children. By most accounts, John was a genuinely good-hearted individual with a progressive spirit. He and his family moved to Boston in 1845, and there he found a city full of people in need of help. He went out rain or shine into the poorest regions of the city, spreading the gospel and working to aid the suffering of the underprivileged. He gained a reputation as a crusader for justice, and as a voice for those members of society who were typically marginalized. He pushed for women's rights, pacifism, prison reform, 
and the abolition of both the death penalty and slavery at a time when such opinions were wildly unpopular. Speer organized the first Universalist anti-slavery convention and helped to oversee the stretch of the Underground Railroad that ran through Boston. Once, while giving a speech in Portland, Maine, about the need to abolish slavery, Speer was attacked and violently beaten by an angry mob. He would eventually recover from his injuries, although he didn't know it at the time. His beating would mark a turning point for his spiritual awakening. Speer had long expressed a casual interest in the spiritualist movement that had gripped much of the nation. But he didn't become a wholehearted advocate of the movement until March of 1852, when he claimed something remarkable happened that changed him forever. One evening while he was wide awake, Speer claimed his hand picked up a pen and completely on its own began to write. What he wrote surprised even him. The words he put on paper came out in a completely unfamiliar script, and they directed him to go to Abington to help a man he didn't know, someone named David Vining. Even stranger still, the note was signed Oliver. Oliver Dennett was the name of the friend of Spears who had nursed him back to health after the severe beating he received in Maine. But Oliver Dennett had died years earlier which led the Reverend to believe that his old friend's spirit had returned to guide him through his spiritual journey. Over time, Spear claimed to receive several more assignments from the spiritual realm, which he claimed were being passed along by a group of even more ascended beings. Sometimes they told him to provide medical care to sick individuals, even though he had no formal medical training of his own. Spear never knew where the spirits would send him, or whom he would encounter at his destination. He traveled all over New England. Often he traveled by foot, even in the worst of weather. He received no reward for his work other than the satisfaction of knowing that he was doing God's work and alleviating the suffering of others. By the summer of 1851, Speer claimed he had received a dozen messages from his late father, which he published as Messages from the Superstate. After the publication, he began conducting a series of live demonstrations. We purported to enter a trance state and allowed the spirits to speak through him. He often gave lectures while in these trances on subjects he allegedly knew little or nothing about. He once spoke at length about geology at Hamilton College, and later one of the faculty members complimented him afterwards on how much he knew about the subject. But this was just the early stages of much bigger things the spirits had planned for John Murray Spear. During a seance in Rochester, New York, Speer claimed that a group of spirits instructed him that he was to begin working on what he described as the ultimate establishment of a divine social state on earth, and that he was to deliver heaven's last and best gift to man. This particular group of spiritual entities, speaking through Speer, called themselves the Association of Electrizers, and they directed the Reverend and his followers to begin building something truly unique, a new life form a real, living machine. Oh, and by the way, the chief spirit of the Electrizers was none other than Ben Franklin. I know, just go with it for now. Spear claimed that these Electrizers were just one of several such spiritual coalitions that were working to bring about a new age of man. A perfect society of complete equality, where all people lived in peace and harmony. 
According to Speer, other groups of spirits known as the healthfulizers, the educationalizers, and the agriculturalizers were all working through other earthly representatives to build this new perfect society. But the electrizers had chosen Speer to head up the new machine age. Through his spiritual contacts, Speer claimed to receive designs for the creation of vast circular cities, thinking machines that we would think of as computers today, and massive electrical ships that ran on stored energy. But before any of these things could be built, first Spear had to usher into this world an electric messiah, the god machine that would lead everyone into the new industrial age. In October of 1853, Spear began building this so-called new motor, which he claimed would draw power from the Earth's natural magnetism. In one respect, Spear was very much unlike Mary Shelley's Dr. Frankenstein, Whereas Shelley's doctor was driven by his own insane hubris, Spear's motivations appeared to be more selfless. He very much believed that he was doing God's work, and that what he was doing would be the greatest boon to humanity the world had ever seen. Spear moved himself and his followers to Lynn, Massachusetts, a town that had a special meaning to the spiritualist movement. It contained an elevated section called High Rock that towered 170 feet above the city proper. Many other spiritualists had visited this place, declaring it a place that possessed special magical properties. Another noted spiritualist named Jesse Hutchinson had once built a stone cottage and tower on the site, and many visitors claimed to have seen angels there. Spear decided it would be the perfect place for a birth to occur. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Although Spear had no real knowledge of mechanical engineering or any other scientific skills for that matter, he began to relay detailed instructions to his followers about how to build his mechanical messiah. Magnets, wheels, pulleys, wires, insulators, and assorted chemicals were all used in the creation of the machine. Even though descriptions of the final machine sounded very inhuman, people who witnessed the machine's construction all claimed that several parts were designed to correspond to the human brain, heart, and lungs. Spear and his followers spent nine months building his contraption, a span of time which we can assume was precisely chosen to coincide with the typical gestation period. During this time, Spear had more than 200 spiritual trance sessions in which he relayed the details of the blueprints the spirits provided to him. Eyewitness descriptions of the machine said that it was built on a dining room table with a pair of metal supports at its center around a steel shaft. From the central shaft, a horizontal crossbar extended outward and from that hung two steel balls, each enclosing a powerful magnet. Beneath that was an oval platform made of metal and more magnets, along with several zinc and copper plates. Positive and negative connections rooted the device in the ground to draw power from the earth. In total, the machine cost what would have been then the monumental sum of $2,000 to build. No drawings or photographs exist of the contraption so we're only left with the aforementioned descriptions to have some idea what it actually looked like. 
By the time the nine-month gestation period was complete, it was finally time for Spears' creation to be born. It would be a long labor. Initially, several small clusters of believers from different socioeconomic divisions were called before the machine to touch it and thereby transfer part of their life essence into it. Spear himself was instructed by the electrizers to midwife the machine into the world. He wrapped himself in a suit made of metal plates, bands, precious metals, and jewels. He was brought into the machine's presence by a small group of followers, and then allowed himself to slip into a deep trance. During his trance, a clairvoyant witness claimed to see an umbilical cord made of glowing energy connecting Spear to the machine. When Spear finally woke from his trance, he was exhausted. He told his followers that he had fed his own vital life energy into the machine, and now they were ready for the machine's mother to arrive on the scene. We don't know her real name for certain, but they all called this woman Mary of the New Dispensation. The most likely candidate for her true identity was Mrs. S.J. Newton, the wife of Alonzo Newton, one of two newspaper reporters in attendance for the ceremony. Whoever she was, she was to act as the surrogate mother for the ritual birth. Although the newspapers took lengths to hide the woman's identity, we can only surmise that she must have felt honored to be chosen by the electrizers to be their vessel to bring this new god into the world. According to witnesses, the woman presented herself before the machine and Reverend Spear. The Reverend knelt before her and took her hand. He cried out, Receive now this blessed power. Then he closed her hand and blew on her fist. This hand shall be unfolded to dispense blessings, he said. That was when the labor pains began. The woman lay on the ground in front of the machine and for two hours began to writhe in pain and acted just like a woman in the throes of labor. Until finally, Reverend Spear announced that the machine was born. The next day, the Boston newspaper, The New Era, bore a headline announcing the God Machine's birth. The article read, Hence we most confidently assert that the advent of the science of sciences, the philosophy of all philosophies, and not long hence, the machine will go alone. To Spear and his followers, it was a monumentous occasion, the moment when the Spirit's plans for the new world could finally begin in earnest. Now with their hard work at hand, they had given this last best gift to man. But the joy surrounding the birth wouldn't last. Over the next few weeks, the mother stayed by the machine's side to care for it and nurture it. But it didn't take long before word began to spread about the God machine throughout the spiritualist community, and the word wasn't good. Spears' followers began to publicly express disappointment that the machine didn't seem to do much of anything. It didn't move, it didn't speak to them, it just sat there. Even Reverend Spear began to express some doubts. When he asked the spirits what was supposed to happen next... He claims they told him that he needed to be patient. As a newborn, the machine needed maternal care. It hungered for nourishment on which to feed and help it grow. Only then, after it fully matured, would it be ready to lead the world into the new age. Spear ultimately decided the machine wasn't going to be able to receive the nourishment it required in Lynn, Massachusetts. So he had it dismantled, boxed up, and shipped to Randolph, New York an area known throughout the spiritualist community for having powerful electric forces running through it. There seemed to be two camps growing among the public, those that believed Spear to be nothing but a fraud, and those that believed he had committed a mortal sin before the eyes of God. 
If you've ever seen a Frankenstein movie, then you've likely seen the part where the angry mob grabs their pitchforks and torches and rushes the castle to destroy the monster. Something eerily similar occurred in Randolph, New York, when the Reverend and his God Machine came to town. In the fall of 1853, a group of townspeople, comprised largely of the congregation from the local Baptist church, stormed the storage building where the machine was being kept and reassembled. Spears stood by in utter horror as the angry mob tore the machine to pieces and smashed it to bits. He screamed and begged for them to stop. He tried to rush forward and throw himself on top of the machine to protect it, but they hauled him back. By the time they were done, the machine was nothing but shattered pieces on the ground. Things were never the same for Reverend Spear after that. No matter what you might think of the man, you have to have some sympathy for someone having his life's work destroyed before his eyes. In the decades that followed, Spear continued to carry out the work the spirits ordered him to do. But he never tried to build another electric messiah ever again. In 1872, at the age of 68, he claimed the electrizers urged him to retire from his ministry. He died several years later in October 1887 in Philadelphia. In the years that followed, there have been several historians who disputed Spears' versions of events. The relative lack of written records surrounding Spears' time in Randolph, New York, have made some people question the veracity of his story about the angry mob that destroyed the machine. There are those that say that Spear made that part of the story up to cover for the fact that his god machine was a total fake. On the other hand, there have been a few true believers who say the Reverend faked the machine's destruction in order to hide it away from the public while it grew to full maturity. It's easy to dismiss the Reverend Spear and his followers as a bunch of delusional people caught up in the whirlwind of spiritualism that gripped the public's imagination. Reverend Spear himself questioned his own sanity more than once throughout his life. If we are to believe his story, then the Reverend went to his grave diminished by the knowledge that his perfect society would never come to pass. That his electric messiah was nothing but shattered junk now. It's easy to look back and write the Reverend off as a well-meaning lunatic. And perhaps he was. Probably he was. But there are those witnesses who were there on the day of the machine's birth who tell another story. According to a few people, there was one brief moment when the impossible occurred. Crazy as it sounds, some people said that after the mother had completed her labor, the machine actually moved. And like Mary Shelley's doctor, the Reverend was able in that moment to proudly proclaim, It's alive. The Conspiratist is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in hearing a much more in-depth podcast about Mary Shelley and the creation of Frankenstein, I encourage you to check out Mike Brown's Pleasing Terrors podcast. Mike did a brilliant episode fairly recently on Frankenstein that I highly recommend. As for my own show, I wanted to let you know that I'm continuing to try new things one of which is my newly launched Society6 store, where you can purchase the Conspirators branded t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and much more. You can find a link to the store on the main page of my website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. As always, I hope you'll continue to spread the love and encourage your friends and family to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. 
Your reviews really help our standing on the iTunes chart and are really a big help to keep us growing. You can also always reach out to us via Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook page, or even via email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear your feedback in any way you think I can help to improve the show. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week. I hope you'll join me.